Welcome to Friday. Welcome to the Week in Review. Bill Radke here. It's great to have you with us. You know, this next hour, we, well, we've got some time together finally here to figure out what happened this week and what it all means. And we've got a panel of journalists to help us do just that. So let's say hello to, <coughs> pardon me, let's say hello to from the city, uh, Seattle City Council Insight. We've got founder and writer Kevin Schofield with us. Kevin, great to see you. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to have your independent news and analysis of the Seattle City Council wordy and nerdy. Um, we've got uh, Crosscut, Central and Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Huang. Mai, welcome back. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Uh, hello. It's a pleasure to have you back, Mai. We've got Fox 13 news correspondent Brandy Cruz. Brandy, um, I saw a tweet from you today. What's right going off on? the top. Yeah, why not? What's going on with, the, with uh, you and Fox? Well, today's my last day after seven years at Fox 13. Uh, and what better way to spend it than on Week in Review talking about elections? Uh, so I won't be going far. I'll have more to announce in a couple of days, but um, have has just been honored last seven years. I have loved that job and have decided to move on. Uh, is it fair to say that you are going to become the new host of Week in Review on KUW? <laughs> yes, I didn't want to break the news to everyone this way, but... Uh -huh. Which is would dangle it like that? Would just leave it like that? Uh, I have not heard that news myself, by the way. I'm just uh, was just seeing if I can get a scoop out of Brandy. Um, we are. Uh, I can see my guests. Uh, by the way, um, uh, I don't know if you noticed that my background has changed a little bit. I'm not in my bedroom. I'm I'm at work. I'm back at work starting this week, two days a week. So I'm coming to you from the university district. Uh, however, my guests are in other other spots and uh, you can see all that in their rectangles um, if you are watching a stream the show at YouTube or at Facebook you just search uh, KUOW public radio um, so let's let's get right into it I mean obviously the big uh, the big news of the week Seattle voters put the brakes on the progressive agenda um, Kevin Schofield, not all of our listeners were paying close attention this week so before we get to analysis you want to start us off with just what happened this week? What were the most important election results in your mind? Well, so we already have, uh, you know, a, a concession speech uh, in the mayor's race. Uh, Bruce Harrell uh, has has won. Uh, his opponent, uh, City Council President uh, Lorena Gonzalez, has conceded that race already. Uh, in the other Seattle races, it looks like uh, Ann Davison is very likely to win that race against uh, Nicole Thomas Kennedy. Uh, it looks like Sarah Nelson is going to uh, win over um, Nikita Oliver, and it looks like Teresa Mosqueda uh, is an incumbent who is going to win over uh, Ken Wilson. So uh, it, it's uh, other than Mosqueda, who ran on a, on a progressive platform, it looks like the moderates are going to win in the other races. That's okay, pretty, and, that's pretty big news. We'll we'll get to other panelists. Which let's say you're um, well. You you were out to coffee right now, you and me, uh, Kevin, and I and I want to know. All right, lots of stuff happened. What do you think was if you had to if you could only tell me about one result? What was the most impactful result this week? Uh, um, I think it would probably be the mayor's race. Mm -hmm. it, it's probably it's super close between that and the city attorney in terms of you know impact on Seattle, but probably the mayor's race. And I, I think what we're going to see, you know, from Harold is likely to be. Uh, you know, a lot of policies very closely to to Mayor Durkin, 
right now. So there may not be a lot of change in the mirror trace, but I think it's going to be interesting to see based upon, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about the messages that got sent this week, Mm -hmm. whether the city council changes its priorities or focus at all, because they've had a very progressive agenda and uh, over the last couple of years, and it seems to have uh, not been taken well by by the voters this week. So we don't see that in the mayor directly, but but the reaction from the city council from that is going to be very interesting. Brandy Cruz, most impactful election result this week? I've got to disagree with Kevin. I think hands down the city attorney's race, in part for one of the reasons he mentioned. The mayor's office is basically a wash. Um, Bruce Harrell and Mayor Durkin are very similar, politically speaking. For me, and although Ann Davison is a new Republican, a little Republican light, I guess, comparatively, the fact that Seattle voters could look past that um, is pretty astounding, you know, given the political makeup of the city. But I really feel like that was a race where no matter the outcome, it was the only race, honestly, for me in recent memory in Seattle politics, where the outcome would represent a drastic departure from business as usual in the city. Either you were going to get a Republican or you were going to get a police abolitionist as the top prosecutor. So to me, the results, and we have called that race, by the way, on Fox 13. We do believe that Ann Davison will be the next city attorney. Okay. All right. More to say about that in a moment. I want to check in with Mai Huang. Who, Mai, you're in Yakima, but you, you've you been following this. In fact, you reported on the mayoral campaign in Seattle at one point. Yeah, I did. I was actually, um, I actually covered the debate um, last week. And um, my my colleague, uh, David was one of the moderators. So I filled in um, for that. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, um, you know, at that debate, you saw, you know, Bruce Harrell pushing kind of um, more officers, albeit, you know, reimagined officers, that's kind of the term. And he really, you know, throughout this whole campaign really pushed this idea that, you know, that Lorena Gonzalez was against, was for defunding police. He really, you know, pushed that message, you know, right to the end. And I guess, you know, that message got voters to vote against her, basically. Well, Lorena Gonzalez said she was in favor of defunding police, mm-hmm. right? Um, so do you, so uh, Kevin, what is a, uh, that was a, a that's a good um, phrase there, a reimagined Reimagining the police. What's a reimagined police officer, Kevin? Well, in in Harold's view, uh, you know, Harold in a lot of the the platform positions he took uh, seemed to really emphasize uh, people voluntarily stepping up. So he, you know, really seemed to believe that he could get the police officers to, uh, you know, sign a statement about you know their principles of progressive policing. Uh, you know, same way he, he also said that, you know, he could get local you know, businesses to, you know, voluntarily step up and, and local philanthropists to vol- voluntarily give more money to support homelessness rather than having to sort of do it through taxes. So, you know, so for the police, I, I think Harold seems to be of the belief that he can just through uh, persuasion, I guess, you know, get get an attitude change among the police officers, and and we'll see what happens there. Um, it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what he thinks about hiring bonuses, right? Which is a big issue that uh, that uh, came up last week with an order from from Mayor Durkin, an executive order, the city council cut, mm-hmm. right? It's an emergency executive order, and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether he thinks that's going to be the thing. Is is money the the carrot that is going to lead to change behavior among police officers? 
Okay. Um, Brandy, you said you, you said Bruce Harrell is kind of a continuation of Mayor Durkin. So do you expect to see any difference in the progressiveness of the Seattle police force? Well, look, you know, to me, there's a couple things here. And reimagining the police means different things to different people. Yes. And, and I agree that for Bruce Harrell, there is a little symbolism there. You know, he talks about wanting them to be experts in de-escalation. But if you look at it just on the merits, there are very few, if any, police departments in the country who have more expertise in de-escalation and training in de-escalation. I've gone through some of those training courses as part of my reporting. Um, and so, you know, some officers take 40 hours of de-escalation training. Um, for someone like Lorena Gonzalez and folks who supported defunding or even abolition. Reimagining police means putting more of a focus on uh, non-uniformed, non-armed police responses. Um, and so, you know, Bruce Harrell is certainly, you know, I think he's open to some of those alternatives to boosting community-based programs that are working to reduce crime. Um, but he also understands the necessity for armed law enforcement. We have response times that have reached 10 minutes for um, priority one calls, which is an active life or death emergency. And, and you know, this is one of the things I think for voters that really struck. You wanna know how your police department is doing, how fast are they getting to me um, in a moment that's life or death. And so I think that's where he's gonna focus it on. But I will say, as it pertains to this general idea of reimagining police, I really believe you could have, for instance, a pro-cop law and order Republican in the mayor's office, but the city of Seattle has no choice at this point but to reimagine policing. Our ranks are too small. They're not going to rebound. So the city has to reimagine how it uses its remaining police force in a way that's most advantageous and that's fo focusing on the most serious calls. There is no choice at this point. I think Brandy's right on that, on, on that point. You know, the, the, the staffing crisis has gotten to such a fever pitch at this point that it's going to be very difficult. And anybody who thinks we're going back to the way it was is pretty deluded. We'd have to find a different path forward from here. I'm going to stick with uh, Kevin and Brandy here for a moment because I'm not done with Seattle. Uh, the new mayor said, quote, uh, Bruce Harrell said, we're going to be very aggressive at moving people out of parks, out of playgrounds and into housing. Is that true? Does he have the votes and the support in in the on the city council uh, to to make that change? And where would those people go? Either of you. Well, we know that, um, you know, thanks in part to coronavirus funding, there's been this buy up of hotels, you know, now more than ever, we do have places to put individuals who are experiencing homelessness. Bruce Harrell, when he was on the council, did support um, what, you know, the, the press refers to as sweeps. I don't love the term, even though I used it myself, just because it insinuates that no outreach was done before clearing a camp, which just has not been the case in the city of Seattle, unless it's an emergency situation. As far as whether he'd have the support from the council, this to me is going to be one of the most interesting takeaways from the election is how the election results impact Seattle leaders who didn't run in the election, who didn't have a race in the election. <clears throat> you know, when you look at the council, which right now is a 7-2 progressive majority, you know, you have council members who ran in 2019 on the promise to um, hire more police officers, turned around in a period of seven months and promised to defund, and then turned around and said, oh, I guess we can't defund. And so you definitely have council members who just sway with the wind, right? They check the wind every day, whatever way it's blowing. So I think you have council members who are going to see, okay, voters just rejected <clears throat> the more anti-police, um, pro-defunding slate of candidates. If I want to keep my seat, I might have to tone things down a little bit. Clearly voters are upset with the homeless crisis, um, you know, it getting out of control with crime. And so 
if they're smart, the council will take note of what the electorate wants and would take some steps to try to rectify those things under a Bruce Harrell administration. You mean if they're smart, they'll put their finger in the in the air and <laughs> go with the way the wind is going? Well, they've already done that, right? I've, I've seen flip-flopping in my career, but this is a council that flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flops, right? And that's fine. But at the end of the day, if they're going to make a decision, right, and finally come to terms with who they are as politicians, their ultimate uh, mission should be to serve their constituents. And I would argue that their constituents just showed loud and clear what their priorities are. Uh, and so, you know, since they flip-flop back and forth so much, I know they don't have any issue changing their, their mind and their direction on things. So this might be a good time to listen to the electorate uh, and to try to make some changes more in line with what the voting base wants. Yeah, the electorate is if, the if, wind. If, yes, Kevin. Yeah, if, that, that is, you know, if these city council members want to get reelected in two years, they may decide, like many, you know, their predecessors and, and the mayor, that they don't necessarily want that. But that aside, coming back to Bill's question on can can a mayor Harrell make a difference on what, you know, what, what's happening with the homeless population, I think it's important for us to remember that this is, a, it isn't one thing, it's a pipeline, right? We start with outreach, to get people into emergency shelters so we can so that from there we can move them successfully into permanent housing. We do not have anywhere near enough permanent affordable housing and permanent housing at this point. So we, you know, to some level have kept sort of increasing the amount of emergency shelter we have, but that's full. It's almost perpetually full because we just don't have places to move a lot of those folks out of from there, right? So at the moment with our affordable housing full and our emergency shelter full, we can do outreach, but the number of people that we can actually get off the street is very, very low. Now, between now and the end of the year, there's some more emergency shelter that's going to come online. It is interesting to note that in the budget discussions for next year, the city council really doesn't have much in terms of more, you know, expansion of the shelter. They can want to upgrade some stuff, but so, you know, will Harold be able to move more people off the street? Well, he doesn't, he's not going to have places to move them to unless he and the city council get on the same page in terms of creating a lot more emergency shelter because the permanent stuff takes years to build. So is the city going to wait for those new shelter and and homes or the city's going to clear people out of encampments with nowhere to go? Well, then we would really be going back to, you know, a brandy, you know, called sweeps, right? Where we're just kind of moving people to other places in the city and not not actually helping really just sort of disrupting their lives and there's you know i, I think you know while while you know I, I think there's broader political support from from you know the voters in the city to not do that then uh you know then there is necessarily uh, you know for a lot of the other progressive positions around homelessness that, that have been you know, i think broadly people think well you know that that is problematic but I think what voter, what I've heard voters say is, no, let's let's get more emergency shelter in place, even if we have to get more creative about the ways we do that, so we can get have places to get more of these folks out of the parks and off the sidewalks and and uh, you know and off our streets. Okay. Yeah, and, and Seattle is a compassionate electorate. That's never going to change. But you know, I think in this election, to a certain extent, you saw where that compassion, where the line is. You know, and even though I don't know that anybody really supports the the general idea of moving homeless individuals from place to place, some of these places where, you know, they have made encampments during the pandemic has been concerning as a matter of public safety. You know, the Broadview Thompson one, when you've got um, homeless shelters, you know, taking over school property. I mean, these are the sorts of things that, okay, 
we don't want to sweep people from place to place, but you know, we, you can't stay here. And, and to me, it seems like Bruce Harrell has acknowledged that, that he agrees with that, that he wants to make sure the parks are clear, sidewalks are clear and things like that. My yeah, Huang you're, you're, is in Yakima. We're going to say more about, about the, the east side of the state in a moment, Mai, but I want to check in with you. Any uh, observations or questions about what you're hearing so far about the west side elections? No. I think the one thing that I am like that I've heard my colleagues talk about is um, it's zoning. Um, if I recall correctly, Bruce really pushed back against, I guess, cha- major changes to single family. Is, is that right? So, you know, I think that's going to, you know, and there's and they're going to be in the process of working on, you know, zoning in their comprehensive plan. So that that could impact, you know, the type of housing that's built in Seattle and therefore, you know, what's available for people who need housing it's true there's there's going to be there's going to be a fight that's brewing right now for 2024 when the city redoes its comprehensive plan gets to do this every what eight years or something like this and one of the big issues and several of the sitting city council members have have, you know quite explicitly said they're going to do this is they're going to move to change the zoning for you know what they call single family zoning where you can basically just have one house on a, you know, on a fairly large lot to allow for more of what they call the missing middle housing, where you can have duplexes and triplexes and small apartment buildings on a lot, you know, in single family residential neighborhoods today. Right now, in most places in the city, in in residential neighborhoods, that is not allowed. And we've, we've had a plan for the last 20 years that focuses, you know, that, that increased density in these urban villages. And that has, you know, basically caused a bunch of problems on its own. So there's going to be a move to expand that. Harold doesn't sound like he's on board with that. And, you know, it is, it has been a divisive issue. How divisive it will be in two and a half years is a really, really good question. But that's one that's certainly going to affect the 2023 city council elections as well. It's going to be a big issue. Brandy, you identified the city attorney, uh, and I think your dog agreed with you. I just heard uh, your <laughs> hearing Kevin, and they got very excited. Sorry yes, yes, it happens. Yeah. Um, you, you identified the city attorney result, um, Ann Davison um, being elected instead of Nicole Thomas Kennedy. So, how much of a change do you expect that to mean? What? How many more people will be prosecuted? What will happen to them? Will they keep cycling in and out of jail? How do you expect? shoplifting and you know and, and and assaults to change what 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 effect are you expecting well i would anticipate it to be fairly significant i mean you know when you talk about for instance the rampant um, shoplifting rings that are happening downtown, which are obvious to anyone who walks downtown. I mean, you see somebody on Third Avenue and they've got a slew of electronics and stuff for sale and uh, 175s of booze. I mean, you know that those are coming from somewhere. And so Ann Davison has made it clear that, you know, those are things that she wants to get to the bottom of. Um, And to me, it has, you know, a much bigger impact than just, you know, stopping, you know, the, the open air selling of these items, but, you know, you've had businesses who are really either struggling to stay open downtown as a result of this, or who have already left downtown as a result of this. So that's an issue of economic uh, revitalization and making sure that downtown remains a visitable place with lots of uh, stores and and shops for people to go to. So I anticipate that she would take a a stronger stance on stuff like that. You know, the issue of repeat offenders is going to be an interesting one to see how she deals with it, because she has said that she understands that it doesn't make a lot of sense to 
continuously prosecute someone over and over when there's an underlying issue that's not being addressed. Um, you know, and even Nicole Thomas Kennedy said this, and it, it's very common sense, uh, where she said, you know, um, the, the issue of repeat offenders shows that the current system isn't working. You know, she has obviously different ideas for dealing with it, but how can you argue with that? If you've got someone in and out of criminal prosecution two dozen times, I think we could all agree that that's, that shows the system isn't working. And so, you know, I think the, the issue is, um, will Anne more aggressively pursue uh, avenues for individuals to um, you know, get help for drug or substance abuse or, or mental health abuse? And, and how does that manifest in the criminal justice system? So I think there are some things with Anne that are TBD, um, but I don't anticipate her being sort of a look the other way prosecutor as some have said Pete Holmes has been for many years. Well, Kevin, you, you, when we were talking about homelessness, you said you thought that Seattle voters were not okay with what we've called sweeps. Um, that that so will would Seattle voters be okay with what we've come to call criminalizing poverty? Uh, did did electing Ann Davison is that a clear message or is that you know a choice of a Republican or does that say more about their opinion about Ann Davison versus this one uh, you know Nicole Thomas Kennedy? Where what's your read? Yeah, so my read on this is is that uh, it sort of gets into the nuances of, of you know what, what we like to call in Seattle our progressive values, right? I think there's there's in many cases broad agreement on our progressive values, but where the rubber hits the road is you know you can you can stamp any particular policy you want as being progressive, but does it actually work, right? So you know we we've been trying a lot of progressive policies. And some of them have been working and some of them haven't been working, right? Um, you know, the city council right now is very concerned at, and, you know, they haven't named Ann Davison specifically, but they've all but named her and saying that they're, they've been very concerned that if, you know, if she, if she becomes the next uh, city attorney, which it certainly looks like she will be, that she won't have the sort of commitment and dedication to the kind of pre-filing diversion programs that, that, you know, Brandy was alluding to where, you know, rather than, you know, filing another uh, case against, uh, against somebody who was arrested for, you know, shoplifting or something, we try to divert them in another program that will solve that underlying problem for them. Um, are, you know, are there, are, we have an investment in those programs. They've been running the city attorney office. Are they actually working or, or, or not? Right. And, you know, that extends to, you know, pre-arrest diversion program to this great program the city has called LEAD, which seems to be working, is pretty expensive. They're trying to spin it up to be citywide next year as well. But there are also people who are concerned that, you know, it, it, it's not as effective as we'd like it to be. So, there, you know, there's this ongoing question of how we evaluate these kinds of progressive policy initiatives. And do at some point, you know, even if they meet our values, if they're not actually working, do we pull the plug on them? Yeah, and I would also add, I really believe that this idea of the criminalization of poverty and what that actually means has been, uh, the, the, the umbrella for that, I feel like has gotten very large. I mean, just because someone is homeless and doesn't mean that prosecuting that person is, is criminalizing poverty. 
you know, if you've got someone who's homeless and they've committed a crime of violence or something like that, I mean, their, their status as, as an individual who is unhoused shouldn't have a lot to do with that unless there's an underlying issue related to mental health or substance abuse. And then, you know, this idea that Nicole Thomas Kennedy floated of that we'd throw the book at someone for stealing a loaf of bread. No one in Seattle believes that we're doing that. No one in Seattle believes that we should do that. But that's a heck of a lot different than stealing 10 grand in electronics and hawking them on the corner of Third and Pine. Uh, and so when we talk about what does it mean to criminalize um, poverty? You know, let's be narrow in the in in the description of what that truly means. A crime of poverty to me means that you know somebody's stealing food so that they can eat, so that they can live. And nobody is criminalizing homelessness. The simple act of living unhoused. There are homeless people who wind up in the criminal justice system for other reasons. And of course, you know, there's a variety of ways that those cases need to be handled depending on what the crime is. But I feel like we've really put crimes of uh, poverty under a big umbrella during this race. Okay, that's a, well, that's a good, dis I, yes, Kevin. I, I was just saying, I, I disagree a bit with Brandy on this because there have been real attempts to criminalize homelessness, right? We've moved away from that here in Seattle, but there are certainly here in Seattle and other places, there have been laws that say, you know, you can't sleep on the sidewalk, right? You, even if you don't have anywhere else to sleep, right? So, you know, there is a history of attempting to criminalize homelessness. Right, but not here, and, not and now. We, less now, right? There are still people, there are still absolutely voters in the city who would like to criminalize sleeping on the sidewalk. Peeing right. outside. We, we have we and we have to admit and peeing outside and things like that. We have to admit that, right? There is a history and is not entirely behind us. Okay, but I and I and this is a great discussion to have. Just while we're week in reviewing these elections, there's so much to talk about. We haven't talked about, you know, Kathy Lambert on the King County Council or the Port Commission or. Um, or the city of SeaTac, or lots of stuff. I want to pause there, and maybe we'll make time for that stuff. But Mai Huang, uh, you are in Yakima, which also I thought um, uh, where voters had something interesting to say. They joined some other Washington state cities in saying yes to a ban on local income taxes. Would you tell us what's behind that? And we could talk about Yakima and then this issue statewide, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's been so obviously, it's, um, well, maybe not everyone knows this, but um, earlier this year, there was a cap gains tax that was passed in the legislature. And um, a lot of conservatives really saw that as an open door to an income tax. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, if you look at Washington Policy Center and other, you know, under conservative think tanks, they kind of, they, that's kind of how they paint it. And so I feel like all these local bans are really much a response to that possibility. It's almost, it's a preemptive move. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, I don't, I think in reality, well, like there are those, would there actually be a tax that would go through those councils? Like, I don't know, but I think it's just an attempt to say like, we're, we're not going to even just, you know, make it a, a this point of discussion. We're going to stop it at, at its tracks right mm. now. So. Okay. And do, do this, these local oppositions to, Income taxes, those are to local income taxes. And do they have anything to do with the debate over a state income tax tax or this capital gains tax? State I mean, it's I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I just I just, you know, for me, I just think it's a preemptive move. I, I don't know. It's hard to say if, you know, what impact it would have on a state tax. I mean, you know, and I yeah, because I've been thinking about this myself. Like, I don't, I, I really think it was just more of a statement, like, that we're not going to support an income tax. 
what whether it actually has an impact in like halting a statewide tax i i don't see that but okay I don't. anyone else well i think i think there's going to be you know a, a message in in these local votes to you know the state legislators that are representing them mm-hmm. right saying uh you know that the, that their constituents really don't support this uh and, and right. it'll be it, it will be an interesting debate this is certainly you know a debate that will continue to happen in the state legislature i think you know just on the capital gains tax it's gone through the courts right now and i think it's very likely uh you know that the courts the courts will end up saying it's an income tax right there's enormous precedent at the federal level and every other state almost every single other state saying that this kind of capital gains tax is an income tax right and they and the, this one that they passed was predicated on the notion that no it's actually a different kind of tax and i don't think the courts are going to buy that so um and you know and so it's going to come back to this whole question again of it's kind of at the state level should we move to an income tax and the thing that bothers me about this you know when we see this over and over again is is uh you know while here in seattle we like to rail against the you know regressive tax system we have in the state and it is very regressive. We never actually try to change anybody's mind outside of Seattle and King County, right? If we really want a statewide income tax and or just even in general a more progressive uh, tax system in this state, we have to go to the other side of the Cascades and talk to the folks there and convince them that it's a better idea than what's going on right now. We just don't do that. Although I will say that, you know, when you look at other types of policies that start in Seattle and eventually make, they make their way statewide. Some of them do, like the minimum wage. I mean, you know, Seattle, SeaTac, those cities started out with, you know, the $15. And then, yeah, granted, we, you know, it wasn't to the same extent statewide. But, you know, I think, you know, if you have a bunch of communities passing a local income tax, for example, like it's going to become this patchwork. And then, you know, it gets to the point where state officials are like, well, we don't want to deal with a patchwork. We'd rather have something consistent. And that's what happened with minimum wage. So it could happen with, it could happen with, you know, the uh, income tax. Um, yeah. But I but I think at the same time, though, having these local communities say we don't want one, you know, also cre- might create an effect the other way as well. So yeah, those are great points. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with Kevin that, you know, uh, I don't want anybody to perceive this as me advocating for an income tax, but they, there isn't a good, you know, when they talk about that and, and why an income tax would, would be important, they need to talk more about the other taxes that they would do away with to get rid of the regressive system and really put that into dollar and cents for people in terms of, you know, what would you pay under an income tax versus what you're paying under the gas tax and the sales tax? And what does that mean uh, for you? Uh, and so I think if there was a better effort to do that, um, and really make people understand the dollar and sense of it, it could be more effective. And again, you, you need to do that outside the city of Seattle. Uh, and as far as these, what really are symbolic votes to, you know, uh, against the income tax, you know, it matters where those are happening. You know, if they're happening in areas that have Republican leadership in Olympia, that it really doesn't mean very much because those aren't the areas or the legislators that would support an income tax anyway. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely on Brandy's point about, you know, I think, you know, when you look at it, like fee, I mean, local communities are finding other ways to get money. I mean, if it's, you know, whether it's a, you know, license plate fee or any number of fees. And so, yeah, I think that's a good point is explaining to voters like, okay, you might not have an income tax, but you have local communities kind of, you know, slicing you in like little pieces, you know, through these fees. And um, yeah, I think that there, that is worth saying, like, if you outline like, okay, here's how much you spend. And maybe an income tax doesn't sound so bad, you know, it's at least consistent and it's not, you know, 
cuts by, you know, death by many cuts. You know, I want to ask you about one Yakima specific uh, election result. My, so many of us have gone virtual through the pandemic and apparently a Yakima city council member has tried to do that in a way and the voters finally had something to say about it. Yeah, so the the Yakima City Council has gone virtual um, during the pandemic, and basically uh, Jason White, he's one of the city council members, he was very against pandemic restrictions and against, uh, you know, uh, meetings going virtual, so he stopped going to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now that's virtual. He's a virtual council member. Yeah, well, no, it it was like, I mean, that was his point, was like, he said, you know, he felt, he was, he felt like... that, you know, it was not, you know, fair to, you know, not meet in person. And so he's trying to make a statement. And so he kind of started, you know, during the pandemic, instead of going to meetings, he just started actually making statements on his Facebook page. And that's how, that's how we heard from him, basically, for a good year and a half. And there were so many attempts, there were attempts, there were legal attempts to recall him, but because there was no, nothing in the the book that said, hey, you can't, you can't, you know, um, kick out a council member over meetings. There was no, there was nothing in the rule book. So that's why we saw this, um, this particular issue come up in this election. And voters finally said, you got to show up. Yeah, you have to go. (laughs) You actually have to do your job and go to meetings, believe it or not. (laughs) Okay, before we leave elections, as I said, um, uh, there were there were a few other results um, that we that we haven't discussed yet. Any that are big deals to any of you? Well, I mean, the Kathy Lambert one is a big deal just because she's had that position on the King County Council for such a long time. And I don't I don't really know, you know, to what extent the um, mailer, the infamous mailer uh, is responsible for that. You know, she this had was the, showing the that yeah, you, you say a little more for those who weren't following the, the Zahalai, et cetera, mailer. Yeah. So Kathy Lambert's campaign sent out a mailer. This was a few weeks before the election and it depicted her um, opponent basically called her a socialist puppet. And on it, um, Jermai Zahalai, who's um, a King County Council member who is black, um, is depicted sort of as the puppet master. And he's got a bow tie that's you know been photoshopped onto him. And um, people said it was racist. Kathy Lambert, you know, lost her leadership positions over it on the council. Um, the Seattle Times took its endorsement back of her. Um, and so I, I, I don't, I honestly don't know how much that played a role, or if people were just frankly ready for someone new on the council. I mean, that is a long time for someone to be in a in a position, but I'm sure that the mailer didn't help. Hmm. Kevin, did you think that was a voter voters becoming more progressive move in King County, or just just more about uh, Lambert or the mailer or something specific? I, I think it was both. I think, yeah, you know. W- it was pretty clear that it was going to be a tighter race than Lambert had in the past. And that just kind of pushed over the edge. I, I, I do think it is interesting when you look at King County and the King County Council that, you know, the the other incumbents running uh, for re-election, I, I think uh, all of them running against more progressive candidates are all easily soaring to re-election, right? Uh, uh, Rod Nabowski, Pete von Reckbauer, Dave Updegrove, are, are easily cruising to wins right now. I just pulled up the results and looked at it again, and yeah, they're, it, it's easy for all of them. So, so the Kathy Lambert one is really an outlier. Okay. Uh, Dale Constantine also looks like he's going to get reelected. It's mm-hmm. that one will probably tighten again when they release results this afternoon, but it, it looks like he's got a pretty comfortable margin at this point on that. 
Okay, that's uh, we've spent most of our hour on elections. Can we uh, with with um, <laughs> I know the, the council member from Yakima is not with us today again. But uh, any other objections <laughs> to my uh, pausing on elections? If we take a quick break and come back with more of the weekend review. No. Okay. Let's, let's do that. Go ahead. So moved. Let's take a break. Thanks for tuning in to Week in Review. We've got Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter Mai Huang with us. We've got Fox 13 News correspondent Brandy Cruz, soon to no longer be at Fox 13 News, uh, as she told us, and from Seattle City Council Insight, the founder and writer Kevin Schofield, uh, joining you to mostly talk about elections so far, understandably. <laughs> but let's catch folks up on the on the pandemic, as we always do. Uh, what was the biggest thing this week? I, the, the, the vaccine was approved for kids age 5 to 11. That's a big deal in my particular family. Um, anyone, wh- what do you think? What are experts saying about what that's going to do to infection rates? Anything to say about uh, about the, the little ones getting shots? Yeah, I think uh, the, the little ones getting the shots is is a big deal. Uh, they're, according to King County Health, there's about 180,000 kids in King County age 5 to 11 that are all now eligible. That's about 8% of the population of the county. So if, if we were to magically get them all vaccinated, you know, right now we're sitting at, you know, about just shy of 72% for the population as a whole, uh, that fully vaccinated. So that could push us to 80%. And, you know, that alone will help sort of getting us, you know, deeper into the herd immunity, uh, you know, uh, uh, region. But it also cuts out a big vector right now for spread of COVID, which is elementary schools, right? And, uh, you know, and after school care, right? Having that set of kids uh, vaccinated will really, I, I think it'll make a, a significant difference in, in urban. And think, you know, think what it would do for the upcoming holidays, right? If over the next month we could get just a, a ton of those kids vaccinated and really drive down the case rate because you know right now we're still case rate you know it seems to you know the, it's been going down it seems to be stalling out both nationally and in King County and and in Washington State um, you know still above well above the levels that we had pre Delta back in July it would be amazing if for the holidays we could get it back down to the pre Delta range and that that this could really make a big difference in getting us there. Okay, kid shots could help to the extent that vaccination also prevents spread. Uh, Brandy, not everybody's going to vaccinate their kids, though. Yeah, and it was really interesting. I saw this uh, King Five poll where they polled parents and non-parents, um, and the non-parents supported kids getting vaccinated more than the parents did. So it'll be interesting to see because we also do know that kids are much less likely to get seriously ill or hospitalized or die from COVID. So parents might make a different decision for their kids than they made for themselves on the vaccine front. Um, What I'm also interested in, you know, one of the reasons that Governor Inslee, Dow Constantine, Jenny Durkin gave for some of the vaccine mandates is that, um, you know, adults and people who were eligible for the vaccine should get it because kids could not. 
Uh, and so now that you have um, children who are going to be able, the ones whose parents want them to, to get vaccinated, what does that mean for some of these mandates that have been in place? You know, once you've given them ample time to be able to get the vaccine, to be considered fully inoculated, is that now you're going to start to peel back some of these mandates that you've put in place, you said, because kids could not get vaccinated. So I'm very curious to um, kind of have that follow-up conversation with elected leaders maybe two, three months from now and revisit some of the rationale for some of the mandates they put down. My, do we know whether um, the COVID vaccine will be mandated for these younger kids if they want to go into schools, a la smallpox, et cetera? I mean, we've seen that in like cities. I think LA, um, LA actually did put a mandate for kids 12 and up um, over there. And I know San Francisco has been talking about it. And so I could see individual cities doing it. Um, I, Sorry, it's I hard to say if it would go to like a state level. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, as Brandy noted, I think there is a little bit more hesitancy among some parents um, regarding um, whether they're vaccine. I, I've, I've definitely seen it seems like there's like three groups. I think there's the group that's going to, I mean, the group that's already, I mean, literally you probably have friends that literally got the appointment. They have an appointment like this weekend. Right. And then you have the group that's kind of, you know, wait and see. Um, and then you have the group, I think that will we'll just not get it. And I think it's fluid. I don't think it's definite that like the group in the middle are going to be like, definitely I'm not getting it. I think they're really wanting to see how it plays out for that early group. The one that's, you know, booking the appointments right now. And I think the other thing to watch for is the how like different communities approach it. I, I don't see a return back to mass vaccination sites. I think we're going to continue to see um, an approach, uh, you know, for, you know, um, <laughs> an approach for back, you know, going to your pediatrician or going to a pharmacy. Um, I think, you know, parents are going to want to hear from their like pediatrician before making that decision. And so I think we're not going to see the return of like mass vaccination site, but that could change. It might, the demand might, might warrant a mass vaccination site. So I think that's a great point. You know, here in Seattle, in King County, you know, what the uh, health department has said is, uh, to my point, they're really focusing much more of the distribution effort on pediatricians and local pharmacies. Um, but uh, city and county are also going to have pop-up vaccination areas to make sure that uh, the distribution is equitable, right? I mean, where there are communities that have a difficult time, may not actually have a regular pediatrician, may have, you know, difficult time getting to, you know, to a place that, that, uh, that they can use, you know, community-based organizations to help reach a lot of the folks who otherwise wouldn't get vaccinated. Brandy, how are the staffing shortages going? Some government agencies have been short on workers for lots of reasons, but including the pandemic. Um, how is that affecting the people who use their services? Well, I know that, in, and forgive me, the election this week, I haven't touched base with SPD and SFD to see how things are going, but um, you know, we already had low response times. And so you have a, a lot more overtime. And this is something that Mayor Durkin alluded to when she did the emergency order authorizing some pretty sizable uh, hiring bonuses for officers who come in. You know, they've had at the 911 center, I believe, a 40% increase in overtime spending. Um, and have, you know, the mayor acknowledged that the addition of the vaccine mandate and jobs that were lost has exacerbated that. And so this is going to be become, you know, you might not notice it right away as citizens in response times. I mean, they're already bad, but response times. But you, you probably don't think very much about how much it's actually costing to get all of those 
um, shifts filled and to make sure that people are there. And so, you know, there is a high cost to being short staffed for the taxpayer. Um, and that's something that I think it'll take a couple months to fully to fully realize. Kevin, any signs staffing shortages are going to ease? Um, I'm not sure that there are signs yet. I, you know, if, if I were just to personally have to go to Vegas and bet on this, I'm suspecting that it's going to be short term, right? Because, um, you know, while folks, you know, individual employees may be taking a stand on this right now, they're eventually going to need a job, right? And, the, and you know, the vaccine mandates are going to be far more widespread than I, I think they think they are. I think they, they may still be thinking that it's gonna be easy for them to go find a job somewhere else. It's not gonna be easy for them to go find a job somewhere else where they where they don't. You look at the, the federal mandate right now that uh, the Biden administration has just put in for companies, right? So, you know, if you're thinking, I'm gonna, you know, take a stand and quit my job, and not get vaccinated, and I'm gonna go find another job, mm, I don't think it's gonna turn out to be that easy at all. Kevin I think Schof it's unfortunate, though, that some of these mandates came out in, in such a tiered way because you could have a police officer or a firefighter who says, like, who, you know, that was one of the first things. And they came out and they said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go work somewhere else. And then mandates keep piling on. And every day there are possible job pool dwindles. And, you know, had there been a full picture at the onset of just how many occupations and stuff would require a vaccine mandate or that the governor would the government would mandate, they might have said, OK. I'm going to have to get one anyway, so I'll get one and I'll stay mm. with my job at SPD or SFD. So I, I can see some frustration there about being, gosh, I quit my job because I thought I could go somewhere else and now I can't. Yeah. Uh, Brandy, are you leaving Fox 13 because of a vaccine mandate? <laughs> no. Did you ask that? Because I I'm, I work for Fox. Uh, no. no, no, no. I, I am fully vaccinated, okay. have been at the earliest available opportunity. Mm. Uh, and so... Uh, that, that is definitely not the reason. No, just curious. That that was a coincidence. Uh, so, so Brandy Brandy's with us. We've got Kevin Schofield, possibly from Las Vegas. Uh, we've got Mai Wong is in the Las Vegas of Washington State. Yakka Vegas. Springs. Palm Springs. Sorry, sorry, Palm Springs. <laughs> and um, and will you tell us, Mai, will you be our Cosmic Crisp correspondent when we come back after a short break? Yes, sure. <laughs> Excellent. Stay tuned for more Week in Review. By the way, we're live streaming. You can see all this. Uh, search, uh, search KOW Public Radio at YouTube or Facebook. Kevin Schofield is with Seattle City Council Insight. Brandy Cruz is wherever she wants to be. Mai Wong of Crosscut, um, I go to you next because this week has been a big week for some Washington apples getting ready to ship. What's happening? Yeah, so Cosmic Crisp, which was the apple um, breeded at Washington State University, um, is going to release a new crop starting shipping out next week. You'll probably, um, in this state, you'll probably already saw some. There's some places that kind of got it out a little early, but I mean, as far as nationwide, I think we will start seeing um, Cosmic Crisp in grocery stores probably in the next two weeks or so. And remind us the big deal about Cosmic Crisp. Why is this an interesting fruit? So Cosmic Crisp is, um, it was breeded actually from Honeycrisp. So Honeycrisp was the apple from Minnesota that kind of swept, you know, consumers. I mean, it was kind of, it's like the consumer darling for like the last 10 years or so. And so, you know, Washington State University really wanted to breed an apple that had those characteristics, but also um, was easier to grow. I mean, big problem with Honeycrisp is that it's really hard to grow. Um, growers would have, you know, 
a good portion of the crop that wasn't sellable. And so they wanted to find a crop that growers could grow in Washington state, um, have the same characteristics and also store really well. So it could be sold at grocery stores year round. Okay. How's, how's Cosmic Crisp going over with eaters? I mean, I think it's, it's going pretty well. I think it, um, I think it resonates with, you know, um, audience. We did a, at Crosscut, we actually did a, a bracket. So I, as a break from elections, we did a, a, an apple variety bracket and um, Cosmic Crisp made it to the semifinal against Honeycrisp and <laughs> lost to Honeycrisp, but it did, it did make it pretty far. And um, I, I do think it, it is an apple that resonates with consumers. I just think that um, the pandemic really impacted its ability to reach consumers. You don't, you know, pandemic really um, ended a lot of in-store events like tastings, things that, you know, you would have done pre-pandemic wasn't really done during the pandemic. They found other ways like, you know, a sample apple and your like curbside delivery, but you know, it's not quite the same. So I think, um, so I think there's been, you know, a lot of the apple industry people told me that that did impact their ability to, you know, promote new varieties the way they wanted to. Brandy, Kevin, do you have a favorite apple? I I like the Cosmic Crisp, but I'm not going to lie. It's a little spendy though. Mm. Is it just me? It's a little expensive. That's by design that, you know, got to get the return for the grower. One of those R&D upfront expense things that hopefully go down. I, I like the Cosmic Crisps. Crisp. I also like um, Granny Smith. I kind of mm. oscillate back and forth between the, when I make apple pie, I use both of those to kind of mix them together and you get this great complexity of, of flavor when you do that. I, you know, I think it's worth just pointing out that we are really spoiled in the state with a variety of different kinds of apples, really mm-hmm. good apples that we can get here. Right? As so, a Washingtonian, I shouldn't admit that the best tasting apple is Braeburn, but, um, but I also have an oath as a journalist to tell the truth. Um, so uh, <laughs> let's leave on some, on some good news. I thought this was cool that a, a, a team, including some folks, from the Burt Museum in the UW dug up fossils from what might be a rare Anzu dinosaur, also known as the chicken from hell dinosaur. Uh, this would make it part of a species called Namus exaggeraticus. These are animals that derive their power not from physical properties, but from overheated names given to them by researchers who like uh, being quoted in the press. The murder hornet is another Namus exaggeraticus. Killer bees are in the same family, and it's very important to identify these critters before they disappear, which would be the bomb cyclone of extinction events. Anything else uh, to leave us with on our way out, team? Happy news. Uh-huh. Good news. My my happy my happy place of this week is uh, I just got to book a family uh, trip to Oregon Shakespeare Festival for next summer. Lovely. Super excited. My family's been doing this for years and years, and we it's just like destroyed us that we couldn't do it for the last two years. So we're like extended family. There's gonna be like ten of us going. It's gonna be amazing, and we're all super excited. That's Kevin Schofield inviting me to Ashland, and uh, Kevin's yeah. with the Seattle City Council Insight. Uh, we've got Mai Huang, Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter and Fox 13 news correspondent, not for long, Brandy Cruz. It's been a joy to listen to you and to see you on our live stream. Thank you for being part of our show this week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great being here. Yeah, looking forward to hearing uh, all your updates here pretty soon. Thanks for joining us on uh, the YouTubes or the Facebooks and searching KUOW Public Radio. And the folks who make that possible, Tio Popescu, Uh, Juan Pablo Chiquiza with our uh, social media and live streaming uh, genius. And thank you to Sarah Leibovitz and Alec Cowan who produced this program. I'm Bill Radke, and we're going to learn more about who's going to be in office and what they plan to do and how they plan to do it 
So join us. Uh, should be another interesting week here in the Puget Sound area. And I hope you'll join us again in another week for Week in Review. This is Bill Radke. If you didn't happen to tune in at the exact right time and you missed something, you didn't really miss it because you could always hear our Week in Review podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your usual places. And let's not limit this to your ears. We live stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. So just go there and search KOW Public Radio and you can watch us live on Fridays or watch old episodes of me and my guests being in little boxes on your screen. See you then.